0: This morning, we conclude Mark's Gospel this Easter Sunday morning with a fitting look at the resurrection account in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there, whether it be a paper copy, electronic copy, however you want to follow along. And we'll read Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 8 together. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. This is God's Word. You know, the word linchpin uh, is used oftentimes within the context of our culture to refer to a person or a thing that's vital, absolutely necessary to the success, health, or forward movement and momentum of any organization or family. And the the word linchpin, listen, originally originated back in the 14th century to describe a literal metal pin that was passed through the end of an axle to hold the wheels on. So, quite literally, if you remove the linchpin, the wheels came off and the movement stopped. It couldn't move forward any longer. Right? And Now, so we use that word figuratively in our context oftentimes. And so, when you think about linchpins, you think that regular showers are the linchpin to staying stank free in middle school, right? I know when kids start developing hormones and they go to camp and they go four days and they said, my mom said I didn't have to shower, right? That stank just emerges, right? But a regular shower is a linchpin. It's vital. (sighs) A little insight into my household. Love and respect are linchpins of a healthy marriage, right? If you want to cultivate a healthy family, a healthy marriage, love and respect are vital. They're the center of a healthy marriage. And church, I'm telling you this morning, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the linchpin of the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. When he writes these words in verse 7, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Paul says, if you remove the resurrection, the wheels of Christianity fall off. There's no longer any forward movement. There's no longer any forward momentum. It cannot stand. And it would not have moved out of the first century past the original disciples of Jesus. All of the disciples, listen, they would have returned home to their mama and daddy's house. They would have learned their daddy's trade. And they would have worked the rest of their lives in relatively obscure right, relatively obscure uh, environments. In fact, one commentator, William Lane, said it this way, says, were it not for the resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth might have appeared as no more than a line or a footnote in Josephus's Antiquity to the Jews, an ancient historical document, if he were mentioned at all. The witness of the four Gospels is unequivocal that following the crucifixion, Jesus' disciples were scattered. Their hopes were shattered by the course of events. And what halted the dissolution of the Messianic movement centered in Jesus was the resurrection. It is the linchpin of the Christian faith. Christianity, quite literally, no pun intended, rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 16, verses one to eight in this resurrection account, I want us to see that the resurrection, the real, literal, historical resurrection of Jesus from the grave, it engages three different kinds of people at three different levels. And the first type of person that the resurrection engages, and the way it engages them is this: The resurrection challenges skeptics. The resurrection challenges skeptics. Look in verse six. When the women show up to the tomb, they find a man clothed in a dazzling white robe. Most certainly an angel who says to them, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. Now listen, surrounding Jesus' life and ministry in first century Palestine... There were dozens and dozens of other messianic movements, other messianic figures, other messianic characters, and in almost every case in those movements, the leader was either assassinated by an individual or executed by the government, and in each of those movements following the death of the leader, it collapsed. Literally, the wheels came off. It stopped moving forward, but not Christianity. And not only did Christianity not collapse, but it exploded over the course of two centuries so that by 200 years after the life and death of Jesus, Christianity has taken the Roman Empire by storm. It has spread throughout the entire empire. And today is by far the largest religious faith on the planet Earth. And so you have, it begs the question, what is the difference then between this messianic movement centered in Jesus, Christianity, and the birth of the church and the carrying forward throughout generations and all these other messianic movements that rose and fall on the death of their leaders and when the wheels came off? Right, what's the difference? And the church has historically answered the difference is the resurrection. That when they go to the tomb, He's not there. He is risen. And yet we live in a day, and we live in an age when many people just don't believe this any longer. Right? The, 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 they, and if this, if, if, if this isn't the case, right? if He hasn't raised from the grave, if you're a skeptic and you're kind of, you doubt that reality, then you must come up with an alternate explanation for Christianity. How did it move forward? How did it continue when every other movement, the wheels fell off? Now, one alternate explanation for how Christianity moved forward is this, that the Gospel accounts were written much later than the events themselves. In other words, they are written hundreds of years, centuries after the, the actual events occurred. So they became myths or legends. And so, of course, in myths and legends, you would expect some fantastical kinds of things happening, like a resurrection from the grave. And yet, Mark challenges that assumption with the way that he writes this text. Let me show you. In verse 1 of chapter 16, Mark mentions the names of three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary Mother of James, and Salome. In fact, this is the third time in nine verses at the end of Mark's Gospel that he mentions these women. In 1540, he mentions they were looking on from a distance. When When all the male disciples had fled, only the women continued to follow. And they were looking on from a distance. In 1547, the two Marys see where Joseph of Arimathea lays the body of Jesus. And now, here in verse 1, Mark tells us that all three bought spices to anoint Jesus' body three days after he was buried. So, to this po- the point is this, like, what's the point, right? The point is this. For an author who doesn't use names very frequently throughout his writings, to have cited these three names multiple times in these nine verses, he's trying to show us that these women were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion, the burial, where He was laid, the tomb that He was put in, and then the resurrection of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. And in the ancient world, everything rose and fell on eyewitness accounts, right? They took that seriously. So if Mark is saying essentially, if you want to corroborate what I'm trying to say to you, go ask Mary, go ask Salome. They're still alive. Go find them. They saw the empty tomb. They can corroborate my story. Now, it's a problem with that in the ancient world. You know what the problem is? They were women. I didn't say it they did this is something listen the early church would not have made this up this was not myth or legend and here's why because in nearly every ancient culture including the Greco-Roman culture including the Jewish culture the testimony of women was not accepted in court it was not validated to be legal In fact, some two centuries following the writing of the gospel, still at this time, 200 years later, there's a pagan by the name of Celsus who would write numbers of books attempting to refute Christianity. He despised Christianity, and he would still poke fun at other Christian leaders, right? Trying to poke holes in their arguments by saying that the resurrection account was based on the gossip of women about an empty tomb. In fact, he goes on in others of his writings and he says this, he says, we all know that women are hysterical, right? They're dramatic, they're emotional, they get carried away. And everyone else in the ancient world would have said, yeah, that's a problem. In other words, listen, this would not have been in there unless it actually happened. No one would have made this up. It would have been like, a for in their culture, it would have been like a black eye on Christianity. And in each of the Gospel accounts, the people who are there to witness the resurrection are women. In addition, listen, the details included in the story. In verse 5, we're told that the young man who's dressed in the white robe, he's sitting on the right side of the tomb whenever they go in. Why, why even include that detail? Right? Why does it matter? Is he sitting in the back? Is he sitting in the front? Is he sitting on the left? Is he sitting on the right? right? It has no bearing on the story. It's just merely a detail that's included whenever you're giving an eyewitness reportage and you're indicating this is history. There's no reason to include it if it's myth or legend. Right? Because myths and legends in the ancient world, they didn't contain the kind of details right, that our modern novels would contain. Right? Our modern novels are written to make you think you're entering into An alternate reality where you're actually experiencing those events. Myths and legends and fiction in the ancient world were not written that way. Don't take my word for it. Take C.S. Lewis's word for it. One of the premier literary scholars of the world. He said this. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this speaking of the gospel accounts, of these, the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, actual eyewitness, verifiable reports, or else some unknown ancient writer without predecessor or successor, somebody that came before them to teach and tutor them, or somebody who carried on the tradition after them, anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. So either this is reported or somebody was taking lessons from John Grisham before he was ever born. Right? Because you don't include these kind of details. So it's not late. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's actual reported. It's actual history. Now others will say, listen, we know the ancient people all hot and bothered by miracles. They look for miracles around every corner, under every stone, under every rock. And we modern people, we are sophisticated enough to know that those things just don't happen. Right? They're just not possible. Listen, I want to tell you something. They didn't think it was possible either. You know why I say that? In Mark's Gospel, on two separate occasions, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and on the third day... I'm going to rise. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. On the third day, I'm going to rise. Twice, he says this. Now, Mark is the kind of writer that has an economy of style. You know what that means? That means if he says something more than once, it was probably said multiple times. And so Jesus may have well said this variety of times throughout His teaching and ministry, and yet, here we are on the third day. All the male disciples have run for the hills. The female followers of Jesus, they've bought spices to go to the tomb to anoint a corpse. A corpse. They believe that he's still dead. No one's sitting around going, huh, one, two. It's the third day. Maybe we should go see if he's alive. Right? No one is doing that because they didn't believe it was going to happen either. Listen, their cultures had just as much of a problem with the resurrection as ours. Greeks, listen, they thought salvation was escaping these physical bodies, right? Removed, being removed from these physical bodies, separating the spirit and the body. Right? There's no way they would have thought conceived of, of a resurrection. The Jews, listen... They they didn't, in their worldview, they had this general resurrection of all people at the end of the age, but they had no category for the individual resurrection of a specific person. And they would have been the last people on the planet to worship another human being as God. And yet, they do. Why? Because they let the evidence challenge their worldview, challenges their worldview. Right? They had the intellectual integrity to look at the evidence and say, my worldview needs to be adjusted because it's wrong because of all this evidence that I see. Do you have that same intellectual integrity? To look at the evidence and not give in to chronolo- excuse me, chronological snobbery. Right? That's what C. S. Lewis called it, whenever you look back on ancient cultures and think that, oh, we were so much more refined. We know better today not to give in to chronological snobbery and not to be intellectually lazy, but to look at the evidence, to have the intellectual integrity to let it challenge your worldview. And if you're not, you have to give an alternate explanation for why this movement and no other carried forward 2,000 years to shape the course of world history. See, the resurrection, it challenges skeptics. But second of all, not only does it challenge skeptics and win intellectual arguments, but listen, I want you to know it also radically addresses the greatest need of the human heart. Not just our minds, but our hearts. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we see an offer of grace to sinners. It challenges skeptics and offers grace to sinners. In verse 7, the angel pronounces one of the most stunning words of grace in all the Bible. Look at what he says. But go tell his disciples and Peter, that He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. And this word of grace from this messenger who brings this divine revelation to these women in that tomb is bringing a message of a you too kind of grace. You also kind of grace. How? Why do we say that? Consider what Jesus doesn't say. Okay? Uh, the, the 't the angel doesn't say this. He doesn't say, "You tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards, right? That I might see them if they beg and plead and, gro- and they better grovel after what they did to me. After what did they di-. Is that how he re- what he says here? No. He doesn't say, if you have any hope of being reinstalled into the movement, they've got to grovel on their hands and knees. And it would have been perfectly warranted after what they did. But Jesus doesn't operate the way that we operate. God does not function the way that we function. See what we say is if you repent I might forgive you. Might reinstate you. I might receive you back into my life and into fellowship and into relationship. But Jesus says, I'm going before you. Come and meet me. In other words, he says, I want you back. He doesn't work the way that we work. We say, if you repent, I might forgive you. He says, I forgive you so that you might repent. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans that it's the kindness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. And Jesus says, I'm going before you. Come and meet me. I want you back. I have loving plans for each and every one of you. He offers grace to them. Now, you and I struggle with the idea of grace for one of two reasons. Right, there are some people here who struggle with the idea of grace because they don't believe they need it. We don't really believe that we need it until something traumatic happens in our life and it exposes our need for grace. The best illustration I can give you of this comes from a short story written by Flannery O'Connor. It's called Revelation. And in that short story, Flannery O'Connor, one of the main characters in the story, her name is Mrs. Turpin. And she's, listen, she's the best Pharisee ever depicted in American literature. She's a woman from the South in the 1930s and 40s, and in the first half of the story, she's sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office. And in that wedding room in the doctor's office, there's people from all other parts of the city, all of the parts of the town. And she's sitting there and she's engaged in a conversation with a woman who's sitting next to her. People of all different races and temperaments and body types, different parts of town. And she's talking to this woman in the office and she's saying, all she's saying is, all she's doing is talking about those people. Right? Those people. Right, you know how they are, you know how they are, you know how those people can be. She is the picture and epitome of self righteousness. Because the way she talks about people in the context of the story is the way you and I talk about people. Let's just get real, okay? It's the way, same way we talk about people, the same way men talk about women and women talk about men. Ooh, right? It's the same way parents talk about children and children talk about their parents. Okay, it's the same way Republicans talk about Democrats and Democrats talk about Republicans. The way artists talk about business people and business people talk about artists. They do nothing all day but make music and paint pictures. They're not driving the economy. F- it's the same way. The same way. The same way different races talk about each other. But as she's blabbering on in this self-pharisaical self-righteousness, there's a young woman who's sitting next to her reading a book, and the name of that young woman is Mary Grace. And at first, Mary Grace holds her tongue and she just listens. And as she listens, she grows more and more angry about what Ms. Turpin is saying and as she talks right about how everyone else is wrong and she is right. Everyone else is evil and she is good. She's got the solution for all the world's problems. And finally, Ms. Turpin gets to a place in the conversation with this other person in the waiting room, the doctor's office, where she says this. When I think who I could have been beside myself, I just feel like shouting, Thank you, Jesus, for making me who I am. Thank you, oh, thank you, Jesus. Now, at that point, Mary Grace explodes. She takes her book, which is titled Human Development, by the way, okay? And she throws it at Miss Turpin, hits her in the eye and cuts her. And she leaps across the coffee table, puts her hands around Mrs. Turpin's throat and starts to choke her. And then she goes into this epileptic epileptic fit that she has there in the wedding room. And all the rest of the people grab her, surround her, pull her off of Mrs. Turpin, pull her to the ground and hold her down as as she shakes. And Mrs. Turpin gets up, bruised and beaten. She looks over and stands over Mary Grace and she says this, Young lady, what have you got to say to me? (laughs) And Mary Grace looks up and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And Miss Turpin suddenly realizes something. She has a revelation. in this traumatic encounter, and she starts to see herself. Because later that day, she goes into her yard, and she engages in this really enraged dialogue between her and God. And she says, why do you send me a message like that? How, how, how am I both a hog and me at the same time? How could I be saved and from hell? Now listen, she understood the Gospel. right? That you're saved not by your works, but by grace. But she could not see what Martin Luther said so many years ago when he said we are simultaneously as Christians, both just and unjust, saint and sinner, at the same time. We're saved and a warthog. All wrapped up in one. But Pharisees don't believe that. They can't see that whenever they look in the mirror. So she's struggling as she, as she has this dialogue with God, and she finally says, why me, God? Why me? There's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And break my back to the bone every day working. And I do for the church. If you like trash better, you go get you some trash. Exactly how am I like them? I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, lounge around the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, I don't know why root beer, dip snuff, spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be just as nasty as them. And a final surge of fury shook her and she cried out to God, who do you think you are? And at that moment, the sun sets and she sees a purple streak in the sky, a visionary light settled in her eyes and she saw a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And Flannery O'Connor writes, Upon this bridge was a vast horde of souls marching toward heaven. There were whole companions of people she thought of as trash. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Then she saw to her surprise coming at the end of the parade a tribe of people whom she recognized as those whom once like herself had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. But they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order, common sense, and respectable behavior. And they alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. So often, until we through a traumatic experience, come face to face with the own evil of our souls, we are Mrs. Turpin. And we struggle with grace that Jesus offers in His resurrection because we don't really believe we need it. I mean, the drug addicts, yes. I mean, the prostitutes, yes. I mean, those who have been abused and abandoned, yes. The or- orphans, yes. Those who can't take care of themselves and don't have, can't pull themselves by their own... Bri- yes. But not us. The second reason people struggle with grace is because they believe they can never receive it. They can never receive it. And if that's you this morning, I want you to look at Peter. He says, tell His disciples and Peter why do you think he singles Peter out you know why he singles Peter out if you've been here with us why because what Peter has done in his denial after denial after denial when Jesus says go and tell his disciples that he's risen he's going before you into Galilee he will meet you there remember he told you all this stuff it was gonna happen right it's happening go and meet him if that's the message they had brought back to the disciples, and the disciples had been sitting there, let's go, Peter might have said, listen, you guys go ahead. I'm not sure he really wants to see me. I'm not sure I can even still be counted amongst his disciples after what I've done. But Jesus singles Peter out to say, I have loving plans for you too, Peter. You jerk. Right? Peter's sin was the greatest of all the disciples. Therefore, listen. We saw this a few weeks ago. As Jesus offers this grace to him, we know that he receives it. Why? Because he stands on the day of Pentecost and he preaches powerfully and the Holy Spirit falls fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. And we know that his sin was the greatest. But because his sin was the greatest, listen church, his repentance was the deepest. And his grasp of grace was the highest. Which makes him the most qualified person to be a leader at the highest level in the early church to feed Jesus' sheep. See, some of us believe we can never, like Peter, believe we can never receive it because we have bought into an understanding of religion that is counter to Christianity and a counter to the gospel because religion says this I'm saved if I'm good because I am morally and spiritually strong, and I'm saved to the degree that I'm strong and I live up to the standards that I've set for myself and other people set for me. But in that view, listen, failure and repentance, it disrupts the flow of God's grace and power into your life. But what Jesus says here in the Gospel is so counter to that because salvation comes by grace and not by works. Salvation comes not by your perfect record or your moral upstanding strength, but by the perfect strength and record of Jesus fulfilling the law in your place and dying to receive your punishment. And if this is the case, if the Gospel is true and religion is false, if that's the case then re- failure and repentance do not short circuit the grace of God flowing into your life but they amplify it they amplify it church the grace of God flowing into your life because when we are willing to look in the listen you and I do everything within our power to refuse to admit that we failed don't we right we we blame our shortcomings right we won't call it sin we won't call it foolishness as the bible calls it. our shortcoming we blame it on somebody else we blame it on our parents we blame it on our upbringing we blame it on our teachers we blame it on our environment we blame all kinds of things we rather than refusing to look in the mirror take responsibility for our own actions and come down on our knees in repentance seeking god's grace we refuse to do that because it feels like a death and it sort of is When we're dying to our own ability to impress God. He's not impressed by Mrs. Turpins. (laughs) But because we don't believe that, we don't think we could ever receive the grace of God, that we've gone too far. But if we would die, you know what will happen? There will be a resurrection. There will be new life. And the Listen. The the best repenters who acknowledge their failure, the best repenters are the best lovers, they're the best leaders. The best repenters are the best pastors and the best parents. The leading repenters are the best teachers and the best counselors. Because they're not standing over you, but they're standing with you, understanding that they themselves need God's grace, but they have not gone too far to remove themselves from it. And it gives them a humble, a humility and a boldness at the same time in life. There is a resurrection that comes through that death because when Jesus is raised, He offers grace to sinners. This forgiveness, this word of you too, grace, comes at the resurrection and not before because our sins are forgiven. Listen, when a criminal goes to jail, They go to jail and they serve out the duration of their sentence. And what do we say they're doing? They're paying their debt to society. And when that debt has been paid, what happens? At the end of their sentence, when they fulfill the sentence that the judge or the jury pronounces, right? then they are clothed again, the doors of the prison are opened, and they are set free. Listen, Jesus was sentenced to death, not because of His own crimes or because of His own sins, but because of ours. And we know that He fulfilled every jot and tittle, every crossing of the T and dotting of the I of the sentence. He fulfilled every day of it. Why? Because He was released on the third day. The stone was rolled away. He was resurrected from the grave. Debt had been paid. So grace is extended. It challenges skeptics. It offers grace to sinners. But listen, church, there's one more type of person and one more way it engages them. Not only does it challenge skeptics and offer grace to sinners, but listen, it gives mission and mindset to disciples. It gives a new mindset and a new mission to those who follow Jesus. In verse 7, the angel says, Don't be alarmed. Go and tell. And these two words, listen, Jesus. the resurrection of Jesus gives us a mindset and a mission to every follower of Jesus. Hey, first of all, it's the mindset. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. See, what the resurrection gives us is a freedom from the world. Freedom from what the world can do to me. Freedom from the decaying the of my own body. Listen, every day when I look in the mirror, I feel it. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't felt anything yet. Just wait. It's coming. And some of you could say, you had not gotten to anything yet, brother. Right? But he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid of what this world will do to you. And here's why. Because the resurrection teaches us that heaven is not a consolation prize for all that we've lost here on earth. It is not. Listen, on the Wheel of Fortune, that's one of the ways I know I'm getting old, right? Is 6.30, every weekday evening, when we're home, after dinner, click on Wheel of Fortune and solve some puzzles together, right? It's good family time, at least for me. So, I enjoy the Wheel of Fortune. That's how I know I'm getting old. But on the Wheel of Fortune, right? On the Wheel of Fortune, they won't let you go away empty-handed. Right? Even though you didn't win big and you're not going to Puerto Rico or you're not going to Denmark and you're not going on to the bonus round and solve the puzzle for a million dollars, they won't let you go away empty-handed. They give you a consolation prize of $1,000 even if you didn't solve anything throughout your time on the show. Right? It's a consolation prize. In other words, we know you didn't win anything. Right? You didn't necessarily lose anything over here, but you didn't win anything. But we're going to give you something just to say, hey, thanks for trying. That is not heaven. Heaven is not a consolation prize for all that we've lost here on Earth, for all the suffering that we've endured, for all the breaking down of our bodies, for the loss of spouses, right, for the waywardness of children, for the persecution that we would receive. Right, for the personal attacks that come our direction. Heaven is not a consolation prize for all of for, for this ordinary life that we have to endure here on earth. But what heaven is, is a transformation of this ordinary life here on earth, a renewal of this ordinary life here on earth. It's not a consolation for it. Right, the reason that we struggle so much with suffering in this life, because we don't, have the, we don't live with this freedom from the world, because we think this body is the only one we're ever going to get. We think the money in our pocket and our bank accounts is the only money we're ever going to have. But what the resurrection teaches us, listen, is that everything that we've lost, we're not going to get a consolation prize for, but everything that we lost will be returned to us 20-fold in the resurrection. Everything's coming back. The renewal of this material creation. And when you think through the implications of that, think about what that means for those who are quadriplegic or paraplegic. Heaven is not a consolation prize for their wheelchair. Heaven is the place where they're going to dance. Think about those who are manic depressive or bipolar or struggle with eating disorders. Heaven is not a consolation prize for all of the suffering that they've endured. For all the empty stomachs, those who refuse to eat because of their self image, because they can't endure putting on another pound. Heaven is not a constellation prize for that. Heaven is the filling of every hunger, every growl of the stomach, because they will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus' glorified body and remain that way forever. No longer worrying about self image. Think about the implications, church. It's freedom from the world. And so you can start quoting George Herbert poems. I know you don't know who, may not know who George Herbert is, but George Herbert poems. He says this Death used to be to me an executioner, but the gospel, he's made him just a gardener. Right? Come on, death, lay me. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. I'm free from this world. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. The mindset. But the mission. Go and tell. Go and tell. The command of verse 7 is to go and tell. But when you read the verse 8, what happens? It says they go away afraid and say nothing to anyone. Nothing to anyone. And then Mark says, I'm done. If you're thinking about verses 9 to 20, go back and read from our our, um, email earlier this week. If you didn't get that, I can send you the links if you're interested to know kind of where why I'm ending here. This is why I'm ending here, but I don't want to spend time on that this morning. Go back and read the articles. But listen, Mark, I believe, ends in this abrupt fashion for a reason. For a reason. See, all through Mark's Gospel, when people see who Jesus is, when they have an encounter with Him, Jesus says, don't go and tell. Don't say, don't, 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 don't. And what do they do? Right? They go and blab it to everyone. And yet here at the end of Mark's Gospel, whenever the angel says, go and tell, what do they do? Silent. Which leaves us with a question as followers of Jesus is what will you do? What will you say? Will you go and tell? Will you proclaim the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, securing His identity as the one and only Son of God, the sinless substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of mankind? Will you go and tell? Will you engage in this mission? Will you embrace this mindset? which is free from fear of what anyone can say to you or what anyone can do to you. Somebody says, stop preaching the gospel. They spit in your face. And you say, I don't care. Because I'm not getting a consolation prize at the end of this. I'm getting the fullness of life restored. So I can lay it all down here to go and tell. To go and tell. Now, at some point, these women must have gone and told. They must have. And that, in, that, that in, uh, you, you see in the other gospel accounts, right? When Peter comes running to the tomb, right? Couldn't be the first one there, but he got there. They must have gone and told, and that, even that gives me courage. You know why? Because there have been many times in which. I have been like those women and been silent. Silent in those moments in which the Holy Spirit has been knocking on my heart saying, go and tell, go and tell. Open your mouth, open your mouth, open your mouth. And my mouth has remained shut. And yet, we see that even in that, there is a God of grace and a God of second chances. God of lavish grace, who would use even our most feeblest attempts to engage in this mission, to bring Him glory and bring good to this world. Have you embraced that mission? Listen, church. The resurrection challenges skeptics. If you're you're here this morning, if you're online and you're listening and watching, I want to ask you a question. Do you have the intellectual integrity to deal with the evidence and let it challenge your assumptions. If you're here this morning or you're listening online and you believe you're you struggle with grace because you believe you don't need it. I don't know what the traumatic experience is going to be for you. I don't know when the veil is going to be lifted for you, when the mirror is going to be put in front of your face, but I pray that God would And if you believe that grace, you struggle with grace because you believe you've you've done too much, you've gone too far to receive it, I want you to look at Peter and know that through repentance, in the face of failure, in the face of wasting and throwing away your life, chasing after endless pursuits of vain pleasures, that knowing, knowing that there's nothing that you've done that has pushed you too far to be a recipient of the grace of God and that you would repent and you would find new life. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, my hope and prayer for you, as it is for me, is that God would help me embrace the mindset and engage in the mission to be a part of His global movement as He carries the good news of Christ's resurrection from the grave to the ends of the earth as we wait for His return. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we're humbled by the resurrection. We're emboldened by the resurrection. We're challenged by the resurrection. We're nurtured by the resurrection. The resurrection is indeed the linchpin it holds the entirety of the Christian faith together. And I pray this morning for those skeptics who may be hearing this today or at some point in the future, God, that they they would have the intellectual integrity to propose some alternate explanation that's rational, incredible, or they would just let the evidence refute their assumptions in the same way that first century Greeks and Romans and Jews did. I pray for those, Father, this morning who struggle with grace. The whole concept of it. Either thinking they don't need it or they, there's no way that they could be recipients of it. God, would You break into their lives with trauma that would expose the reality of their own hearts. And God, would You minister softly and tenderly to those hearts that have been pricked. Break- and for the followers of Christ, the disciples of Jesus, those who have repented of sin who know what it is to experience grace. God, would You help us to be free from terror, free from alarm, free from fear, from what this world might do to us so that we might be free for the world to go and tell. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.